0: everyone. It is that time again. Wisdom and golf.
1: Golf's perfect imperfections.
0: Thanks for tuning in, everybody. All right. And here is the moment we've all been waiting for. We have Dr. Raymond Pryor in the house. Just wrote a beautiful book by the name of Golf Beneath the Surface. And uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Pryor.
2: Thank you for having me, guys. It's been uh, been a while coming.
0: All right. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm so jazzed about it. We've uh, I've gone through the book and, and uh, in a pretty extensive way, took a lot of copious notes. I, I did the audio books I went through. I spent a lot of time in there. And um, so, you know, Savin Moo just came back from the world long drive. So they're world long drive competitors. Yeah. And uh, so I wanted to get Moo started just to, just to warm things up. And he's got, uh, he's got a, a question for you. And uh, that'll help expose our, our listeners to the kind of work that you do.
2: Sure. Fire away.
0: Fire away, Moo.
3: All right. So um, for me, when I go play golf, um, I'm struggling with, um, you know, just anticipating the outcome every time. So with the chips, like the 50 yards to 60-yard chips or pitch shots, I uh, tend to be very stiff uh, and I forget or I tend to think about the consequence of the outcome of the shot. Like, oh, if I chip this onto the green, I get to putt for birdie or eagle. And then I duff the, the chip or a, a chili dip or like the outcome is not what I wanted. And then I get into a weird, weird spiral where I'm punishing myself in my mind about what I did, just did wrong. I just why didn't just. Focus on executing rather than focus on the outcome. And I'm wondering if uh, if you have some kind of, mech- not mechanism, but some way to remedy that so that the next hole uh, won't have that the same consequences, essentially.
2: So your question is, how can you stay on time more? Or how is it that you can be less punishing to yourself in this situation?
3: Stay on time and be present with each shot. Uh, essentially. Yeah, okay.
2: Yeah. And in your experience, is what you're experiencing as you're over a, a scoring shot and you use the word anticipating, yeah. are you anticipating the outcome, meaning excited and trying to get to it sooner? Yeah. Or is it the, yeah. more a sense of anxiety, which is worrying about what the outcome might be?
3: Uh, the first one anticipating the outcome and yeah, getting the excited, the adrenaline kicks in and I'm like, Oh, this is going to be a good shot for a birdie or a good shot for an Eagle, uh, coming yeah, up. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so a really common experience for many golfers when they have a shot that they're kind of licking their chops on Mm -hmm. is to get ahead of themselves a little bit and want the outcome to play out before it gets there. Yeah. Moo, what I would ask is, are there any indicators for you when you are either stepping into or standing over a shot that are telling you that you are, in the phrase that I would use, off time, meaning you're ahead of yourself? Faster than time is actually playing out. So you're at the outcome before it's even happened?
3: Yeah. So when I'm walking towards a shot, I'm already like, like in my chops and like, oh, I hit the driver 330 on the fairway. I got like 60 yards into getting the green. So it's like after that shot, you're, I'm really like adrenaline's through the roof. And I'm already thinking about where I want to land the shot, how it's going to play out before I even get to the putter, like uh, how I'm going to put the, uh, put the, uh, ball before i even make the chip shot so it's like those scenarios are playing in my mind before i even execute
2: the seven okay seven. so you've got yeah you've got a bunch of future scenarios playing out before you even get there that is in part fueled by some nerves yeah right okay yeah uh and then when do those typically start like if you're going to find those playing out at their earliest where would that be it's you're walking up to the shot you are standing over it where do those play out for you
3: uh as soon as i get within like uh, two yards of the shot. Like I set my clubs that, or I have my push cart ready to go. I already know what club I'm going to pick out. And, you know, before doing my normal routine where I'm just present, I'm just thinking about how the shots going to be the, the shot that gets me, you know, birdie or Eagle. So, yeah, right on. Yeah. So okay. that's, that, those that's where I'm trying to manage those expectations and, and uh, anticipations. So I'm not, um, Myself with the, with the strokes.
2: Yeah. Okay. uh So it sounds like there's some a couple of pronounced indicators at certain times, meaning kind of when you arrive at your golf ball. Yeah. Is there, as best you can articulate, are there any reasons that would move you ahead of the time as it's actually playing out?
3: Um. Just uh. It's probably because I'm trying to perform well and try to you know bring my handicap down. Um. So, like, there's goals around there, that external motivators like that that are always kind of hovering in the back of my mind, which is probably yeah. not helping me, I think, because it's not allowing me to just enjoy the round and, and actually
0: Yeah, in other the- words, you know, when you're hitting it that far and that act because because he strikes the ball beautifully and he gets the ball down the fairway and then he has that, I believe, I would say you have expectations of playing better Yeah. From the quality of shots that you hit. Right. So now you're leaning on that short game to provide you with those results.
3: Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's where I'm at in terms of uh, growth in the golf game, essentially.
2: Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So the important part. So the reason I asked you a couple of those questions is I want to get a, an idea of what is the shade of off time you're in. So there's different, different shades, right? So for example, what you're experiencing is a sense of anticipation or eagerness. Like you're wanting to get to an outcome sooner, Mm -hmm. but you're not worried about it. So anxiety would be a different shade of being off time where it's actually a worry about the future outcome or the reason I am a intentionally and emotionally attached to it before it happens is because I'm trying to avoid things that I don't want to happen. Right. So I'm not getting the sense that this is an anxiety situation for you. Yeah. It's more of a uh, I'm excited. It's a bit of a, for those who are, uh, in the Northern hemisphere, a bit of a, uh, Christmas morning situation. Right? <laughs> I can't sleep, right? Yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm on, Which, I'm on that so, spectrum.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And again, the reason that is, um, oftentimes leads to disrupted physical skills is because even though you're not multitasking with avoidance in the case of anxiety, you're still multitasking with a frame that's not actually happening. Right. And so, you know, if we were going to think about this kind of as a, as a thought exercise, I might say, you know, imagine you're wearing a watch on one hand mm-hmm. that has the actual time of the world playing out at the time that it plays out. And then on your other wrist is a watch that would indicate what time your focus is on, whether it's behind time on time, meaning synced with the time that's actually playing out and the, or perhaps you're in the future, meaning it's ahead of time. Okay. So the key for us, even when we are excited and um, licking our chops at a scoring shot is can we get our watches synced here? And we cannot move actual time faster or slower. Time doesn't move slower or faster for us even though it might feel like it sometimes. The key is, can I get my psychological and focus clock on the same time that time is actually playing out? So one of the things I was just speaking about with a LPJ tour player a little while ago, the phrase that she uses and I'll, I'll bring this in for you and we'll try to put it into a little framework for you. Okay. Um, the phrase that she uses is let yourself in the moment breathe. And what she means by that is she's going to use her breath in a mindful way. So this is a, a connected breath, not just I'm breathing. So using our breath to relax or calm down or be more confident is usually not very helpful for us. Mm-hmm. Using our breath to actually be present and as a anchoring mechanism. So by doing so, the way we do that is to pay attention to how our breath physically feels to us in the moment that we're in. It's not the only means which with we can start to anchor to the present moment, but it is one that is always available to us no matter what. And so therefore it's really reliable. Okay. And so again, I would almost ask you like right now, Mo, if I asked you, how do you know you're breathing in a super literal way, not in a spiritual or f- metaphysical or even philosophical sense but like how do you know you're breathing how would you answer that question
3: it's very difficult because uh, i don't really think about it in um in that sense so it's something that i probably have to pay attention to a bit more
2: yeah so if you were paying attention to the physical sensation of your breath right now what would you notice
3: i would notice that i would I need to bring it down a bit, slow down a bit more. So
2: I'm yeah, time out. I'm not asking you to change your breath or okay. modify it. I'm okay. asking you, where do you physically feel your breath right now?
3: Um, Through my nose.
2: There you go. Yep. Beautiful. So again, a mindful breath. We are not trying to change or modify our breath. It's not a good breath or a bad breath. Mm-hmm. I'm only paying attention to what it physically feels like for me to breathe right now in the present moment and that physical connection to the present moment is what sinks our watches okay so a variety of different athletes or especially golfers many of them will say i feel air coming in my nose or out my mouth some of them will get really into that sensation and go i notice the air coming in my nose is cooler than the air going out of my mouth or oftentimes athletes will tell me i feel a rise and fall of my abdomen." So again, I'm not modifying or judging my breath. I'm paying attention to what it physically feels like to breathe in the moment that I physically am living in. So we can only physically be in one moment in time, and that is our actual time playing out. But oftentimes we drift psychologically. And so one of the fastest ways to reconnect with the physical moment we're in is to find a physical anchoring point. And again, our breath is always available to us. And so when we use our breath to sync our watches, meaning pay attention to what it's like to be in the physical moment, that helps to get us back on time. So that is when that LPJ player says to me, I let myself and the moment breathe. Letting herself breathe is taking a couple of mindful breaths where, again, she's not trying to calm down. She's not trying to relax. She's not trying to be more comfortable. She's not even modifying her breath. She's only paying attention to what it feels like to physically breathe in the present moment. And when we do this, we cannot help, but our focus be more synced to the, the time that when it's actually playing out.
3: Wow, that's the good. second
2: part of, yeah. Okay. So the second part of that is let yourself. And then the second part is let the moment breathe, which is there's a part of us that oftentimes we want to get to the outcomes. We want sooner and get away from the outcomes we want as fast as possible. Letting the moment breathe means let things play out, which means if the world can only play out a second at a time or a moment at a time, I'm going to be willing to let it play out on its time rather than my preferred time. And the reason this is really strong for us is because we don't actually really have a choice in the matter. That's right. So the (laughs) the more we are willing to let things play out as time and speed and physics actually dictate, the less we feel the need to rush through them. And this isn't a bad thing that you want to get to a scoring shot and get it over with and get that thing as close to the hole as possible and try to make birdie and do all the things. The issue is you're trying to do it faster than time can actually play out. And so you are off time, meaning you're just ahead of yourself in the future. So your watches are not synced. Right. And the other part is that you're trying to have things play out faster than they can physically play out. And so I could throw the word patience at you, but it's not really about patience it's about can i sit in this moment as it's actually playing out and get to the next one when it gets here because that's the only option i really have and when you do that now what's starting to happen because you're on time and you're willing to let time play out on its time not your time because it's not your time it's that time then what happens is you have now have more access to your skills and so instead of rushing through them or allowing your nerves and your future anticipation dictate how you're playing shot you get to dictate it now of course that still means you're trying to stick that thing as close as you can maybe even jar it from wherever you are yeah. and make birdie and continue around and shoot the lowest score you can mm-hmm. but you can't get to any of those things faster than time actually plays out and so if you notice so the structure we're putting you in is one can you notice the signs and symptoms that your watches become unsynced they're mm-hmm. not synchronized meaning mm-hmm. you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself and by the way everybody in the world gets ahead of themselves or behind themselves at times, meaning off time, right? The key is, can I pay attention to those and be aware of them? And then the second thing is, do I know how to ground myself? And then am I willing to let the time play out only as fast as it can play out? And so you have a bit of a one, two, three process, which is, can I pay attention to the signs and symptoms and situations where I tend to get ahead of myself, both internal and external external in this situation is probably a scoring shot that offers you an opportunity to move closer to the things that are important to you. Right. The internal signs are probably the nerves and the thoughts that are telling you get there faster. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if I can pay attention to those and use those as an opportunity to then ground yourself using your breath and then give yourself and the moment and let them both breathe, that's going to give you the time to be able to execute your skills uh, as time's actually playing out rather than in a time frame that you wish it was, but doesn't actually exist.
0: Correct. The, the rest of this podcast is gravy people. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like that was not beautiful. That was profound. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's really- and, and Mo, if you wanted to supplement that, yeah. you know, in my book, I document some mindful, uh, mindfulness practices yeah. Yeah. and in them, the whole point of mindfulness practice is the two things that you just mentioned, those two part process. The first is bringing a, a more mindful awareness to our performance so mindful awareness is um it's mindfulness is another way of saying awareness but it's a very specific type of awareness mm-hmm. first of all it's proactive rather than reactive
3: right
2: it's accepting meaning i'm dealing with things as they are not as fast or as slow or as good or as bad as i wish they would be right. and it's grounded meaning it's more present and it's that type of awareness that allows us to pay attention to our experience and what we are doing in it in a way that keeps us um, in a position where we can make intentional choices about what we do. And so if you have a mindful practice where you are starting to develop this kind of awareness and they also start to train us to be anchored to the presence in a more physical and tangible way, that could be a really nice supplement to that kind of one, two, three process that we just uh, just detailed too. For sure. Okay.
3: Yeah. That, I appreciate that. I'll take a look at those um, uh, chapters. Uh, yeah. Shot yeah. me. My my
0: favorite's the body scan. The
3: body scan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I wake up at three in the morning. I go back to bed, and then I start thinking about all the stuff that's going to happen during the day, and then the you know the brain starts going and you go whoa, enough. I'm gonna breathe, and we're gonna just pay attention, and then just go through the body scan. So how how do my feet feel? How do my legs feel? my quads, you know, my knees, my joints. And then I go up the land. by the time I'm halfway done, I'm back to sleep.
2: Yeah. And, you know, to your, um, to your experience there, Sean, there are two things that keep us from sleeping. Well, one of them is we are doing a lot of things during our waking hours that keep our nervous system activated enough not to fall asleep. And the second is our own thoughts, yeah. whether that's anxiety or just being preoccupied and problem solving and anticipating and our mindful exercise the reason they help us to sleep and and you would be one of many 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 people who find it really valuable to have a body scan or if you're looking in yeah. the, the psychological literature it would go under the the category of yoga nidra mm-hmm. where what it does is it down regulates your nervous system and it grounds your thoughts and that is essentially the formula for sleep for our brain there it
1: is my my mom could use that cuz she has a very very hard time sleeping <laughs> <I
2: know>. yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, let's not go there <laughs>
1: <laughs> You'll give her that body scan though. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'll give her a body scan <laughs>
1: um, I have a couple of questions More targeted towards the female side of things um, You know, recently there's been more conversation about like the female cycle Like our menstrual cycles and how that plays into our everyday And kind of how unavoidable those I mean, it's just a biological thing that's unavoidable for life, right? And finding tools on how to kind of accommodate for it and work around it depending on the situations that you're in. And for me in long drive, we were just, when we were just at worlds, the first day was great. I went in kind of no expectations, see what happens. And honestly, my goal was to make it to day two. And I would have been, and I was, Gonna be super happy. So I make it to day two and I'm like, okay, well realistically my chances of moving on to day three, just based off of my speeds and everything like that are not the highest. And I was, I was okay with that, but I had, I opened with an OB set and it just, it just threw me because I came from, my first day having six out of six balls in two of my sets, super consistent balls in play to going to an OB set on the on day two to open. And I'm like, how, I,
0: how do you get over that?
1: How do I get over that? Because it wasn't even like I was upset that that would hurt my chances of moving on to day three. It was more so I was like disappointed in myself knowing that I can do much better than that.
2: Hmm. So your question is, how do you get over, um, we might say some setbacks or failures that are more than we anticipated. And then tell me how this layer moves into, you were talking about, uh, menstrual cycles and, yeah. and that type of stuff. Is Are those two separate questions or are those together?
1: Um, depending. So together, because let's say I was in that same situation at world, but I was right. Before like mm-hmm. my period and my yep. hormones have dropped. I have no control over my emotions at that point. It's like, how do you get over those like biological inevitabilities as a woman?
2: Yeah, can be a real challenge. And, you know, as a uh, a male, I will temper my um, my response to this and saying that I'll just know. I'll just relay what I know from our research and from our physiological understanding and that women often experience their menstrual cycles and then the, um, the hormonal change. And then therefore the physiological symptoms differently. Mm -hmm. So I would say with any client, whether it was something like a menstrual cycle or um, something they're experiencing in their life, there's a significant amount of awareness to how you experience those changes Mm -hmm. that oftentimes helps us prepare for those uh, more preemptively. So it's front loading the process. You know, for example, it's not uncommon that many of the players that I work with on the LPGA tour in our conversations together, I'm asking them, you know, how are you feeling? And in that question is oftentimes loaded, you know, physiologically as well as emotionally or cognitively. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and if you can do that, you can oftentimes, um, anticipate that discomfort that you might have the swings that you might have That in ways that allow you to navigate them with a little bit more patience and grace than wishing they weren't happening. So there's a level of acceptance of how you experience anything Mm -hmm. that gives you a little bit more freedom to navigate them. And acceptance by that, I mean, dealing with things as they are for you rather than what they wish they would be, or however they are timed, rather than wishing they were more convenient, Mm -hmm. oftentimes Mm -hmm. gives us a little bit more room to then go, okay, well then how do I want to navigate this? Right. And anytime that we are navigating something that is of high emotional impact for us, so this can kind of more lead to the second part of your question. With any of my clients, I'm asking them, what is the explanatory style you're bringing to this, you had through it, and you brought to it afterward? And by that, I mean, um, as a general rule of thumb, we explain things through two different means. We have what's called an optimistic explanatory style and a pessimistic explanatory style. They are not, did I just see things as a glass half full or half empty? It's really the reason why we would see a glass half full or half empty or any experience of our life. In an optimistic explanatory style, we usually explain things. For example, having your menstrual cycle and the effects that come with it at a time that is not very convenient for you, Mm. or even just maybe everything was great and you just missed every single fairway. We can explain those as, um, temporary, sh- more specific and non-personal. So that would be our optimistic explanatory style versus our pessimistic explanatory, which is we often explain things as more permanent, more pervasive and more personal than they are. So it's another way of saying more long-term, more widespread and more personal. Mm-hmm. And so for example, let's say I go out and I try my very best and I've missed all eight shots in my long drive competition, like no, nothing in the grid. Mm-hmm. I can explain that as, man, that was not great today. And my whole entire thing that I'm doing, my whole system of training and my swing and my approach to this, all of it is awful. So baby out with the bathwater. And you know what, this is just further evidence that I myself am just incapable of doing this. Right. So what that would be doing would be making a an experience, particularly in this case, we might put it under the category of failure as something that is a really long-term problem, a very widespread problem, and something that is a personal indictment to you and your capacities, in which case then it's not a surprise that our emotional response to that is going to be much heavier and make it very difficult for us to move forward and get better. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's if you are trying to compete at something and be good at something, particularly in the in the uh, public sphere, you're going to experience failure and mistakes to certain degrees. Yeah. What our optimistic explanatory style does, it's not that it tries to sugarcoat things and smother it with positivity. It's trying to move closer to truth. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is most of the time when we fail, there is some amount of time that it lasts. It's very rarely as long as we explain it to be. Mm Similarly, there are things that when we fail or make mistakes that we might need to improve and make adjustments on and evaluate honestly, but very rarely are the problems nearly as widespread or as intense or as deeply seated as we tend to make them. Mm-hmm. And almost always, our performance is far more a reflection of the efforts we applied and the circumstances that we had to apply them in than a personal indictment that you either are or are not good enough. Right. And so what I would encourage anyone who's experienced both success or failure is what explanatory style are you bringing to this? How are you explaining this event or experience to your life, to yourself? And again, you're not trying to sugarcoat it and tell yourself, hey, you did a great job. You did nothing wrong. It's just the world conspired against you because that's not true. (laughs) But you might evaluate like, okay, well, what is the scope of this situation? Like, how long does this failure last? You know, for example, if I was talking with a tour player and they said I missed the cut. Well, there's a length of time that that impacts their life. They're not going to be able to tee it up again for, you know, for if they're fortunate enough to have status available to them, it might be several days. If they're not, it might be several weeks. But very rarely is it an end all be all type of situation. Similarly, if I said, wow, so every single part of your game and your performance was a complete disaster. Well, no, actually, what I did was my putting just wasn't great this week. And I'll go, okay, so what about your putting? Well, I was having my speed was pretty good, but I wasn't reading line very well. Okay, well, that's a very different situation than my entire game is a disaster and I'm never going to make a cut. (laughs) And then also, well, it just proves that I'm not good enough to be on this tour or that I shouldn't be out here. Is it or is it that you didn't execute well enough based on the things that you were doing? And there were some circumstances that made it more difficult for you to do that. And if we take some time to evaluate how we can do that better, that might give you a chance to have something different. Now, again, in an optimistic explanatory style, it doesn't mean that failure doesn't have some heartbreak in it and isn't disappointing, but it's a very different level of emotional bombshell than a pessimistic explanatory style that tells me I have just made a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah. And so what's what I would, again, as a man, I'll be very careful with this, but I would say if you are um, experiencing the uh, symptoms that come with menstruation and the hormone shifts that come with it, it can be easy for us to shift to a pessimistic explanatory style because we don't feel very good.
1: Yeah, that's what tends to happen so, with me.
2: Right. And so if we can pay attention to the fact that I don't feel very good and then pay attention to how we are explaining the events and experiences of our lives, that gives us a much better much better chance to navigate them uh, what, with whatever circumstances and challenges we're facing, both internal and external. And if things don't go our way, it gives us the opportunity to more accurately and objectively evaluate our performance where we can actually learn from it and get better rather than making a bunch of conclusions that make it very difficult to stay motivated, to try to get better, to actually get better. And then ultimately that tends to destabilize confidence pretty significantly.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: Brilliant. Does does that get to your questions?
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Cause you know, There's been times where I'll go up at a competition and like in Denver, I felt so good. I felt so confident. And it was the first time that I had felt that way in competition. And then in Kingsport, Tennessee, it was, you know, right before my period, not feeling very great. Had an OB, my first OB set ever in long drive. And that mm-hmm. just like, it it was so, I couldn't get out of the, the mental slump and it just, it ruined my whole event, which is disappointing. Yeah.
2: yeah, if you're telling me I physically feel awful and I performed, you know, we might say worse than I ever have in my current experience, those are two significant setbacks of very challenging situations. And I wouldn't ever try to make any client feel better about that. My Mm. job isn't to help people manage their feelings, but I would want to know what psychology you're bringing to that, that then impacts your feelings. So, you know, as a bit of a, an insight and getting kind of really technical with our psychology, there's nobody in the world who technically controls their emotions. We only control how we think about things, or there's a certain way we think about things that Um, delivers our emotions so even though thoughts and emotions oftentimes seem like they happen instantaneously you know the vast majority of neurologists and psychologists agree that thoughts technically precede emotions whether it's a preset thought or a core belief or whether it's a spontaneous one and so if we pay attention to oftentimes how we are what meaning and purpose and purpose we're giving to events that's going to determine a large part of what the what the emotional response is. Now, we typically have preloaded that failure doesn't feel good for us. Mm-hmm. Does That's not how it has to be. But for the most part, for most people, that's how it sits. So then if you're adding, physically, I didn't feel good. Then I failed, which also doesn't feel good. <coughs> Excuse me. And then I've thrown a pessimistic explanatory style on it. That's going to be a heavy, heavy experience.
1: Yeah.
0: There we go.
1: Yeah, so I guess... Based on what you're saying, I think the best way forward for me, if that were to happen again, is I guess just being mindful of kind of what's happening in the moment and I guess adjusting my perspective to the more optimistic side of things rather than the pessimistic.
2: Your your optimistic explanatory style isn't trying to sugarcoat the experience. Yes. It is, however, trying to see it more objectively and truthfully. Yes and if it was objective and truthful for you that also gives you objective and truthful means to be able to get better or do something differently in the similar set of circumstances. Yeah, and that's learning, dude, and that yeah. is very motivating for us.
1: Yeah, that's uh, I I almost wish that I could have had that that learning like in the moment, and I've I've had those learning experiences like after reflecting on the events. And I guess now at the end of the season it's nice to have, you know, the, uh, the explanation and the psychology behind it from you. And that, I think that'll be a a huge thing to bring into next season with me.
0: Absolutely.
2: One of the things you're, you're, uh, communicating there that I think is important for any listener is us paying attention to, and even what in psychology we call this front loading, front loading means it not different, not that different than physical training. You're doing the work oftentimes before you need it. And so if we front load our explanatory style, making sure we're paying attention to what are the explanations we are giving to both success and failure and paying attention to those, oftentimes that sets us up to bring those in rather than hoping that our default settings spit those to us while we're actually in competition. Right. You show up with your tools. Correct.
0: Absolutely. The, um, you know one of the things that i really appreciated from the book because i i use a lot of this in my in my teachings is you know when you brought the the construct physical construct of the brain forward and you know the the lizard brain the limbic brain and then the neocortex and the fact that they all work at different speeds which was really cool for you know neocortex is a lot slower and, and, uh, your, your lizard brain really engages super fast when it comes to situations of anxiety and, and how it just takes the, 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 the the prefrontal cortex offline. I hope I said that right.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, an updated version of the systems that you described, there would just be old brain and new brain, old brain being our fastest and strongest. So it's not just that they're faster, they're also stronger. And Mm -hmm. they will overpower the weaker, slower parts of our brain that we would prefer to be operating on if our psychology or the actual physical situation gives them reason to. So anxiety actually comes from our prefrontal cortex where it's us playing out all the what if and uh oh, don't let this happen. And you can't let this happen. And what if this and what if that happens to the point where it becomes threatening enough that our old brain recognizes it as a threat? Because, again, it doesn't really know the difference between what is an actual physical threat and what's only an imagined threat. And so if we give it enough imagined threat, it goes, well, you're too slow and not strong enough to be able to handle this. I'll go ahead and take over, which in a survival based setting is really, really helpful. Yeah. But in a thriving setting where the margin for error is about the size of a dime on a club face, and that's assuming you're in the fairway, mm. um, it doesn't give us a lot of freedom to be able to operate because we're in survival mode. You know, if you, we boil human psychology down to what are the two things that we can really move toward or away from at any point, it's either pursuing or protecting And what anxiety does is it puts us in protection mode and we are the decision-making that we have is coming from the fastest, strongest parts of our brain that do not care about how well we do something, only do we get out of there as safely as possible. And again, in survival settings, outstanding. But in thriving settings where we're trying to hit a golf ball perhaps really, really far or perhaps really, really precisely, that type of decision-making does not really help us very much. And if you do that to a degree where that, that loop and that constriction gets tight enough, Sean, like that's the formula for the yips.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Get it over with quick.
2: As fast as possible. Or that, you know, the yips comes in kind of two forms. The one that we see most often is uh, the, the very jerky motion towards something that disrupts yeah. the smoothness and the um, intention of the, the physical skills. Yeah. And that is your brain, through anxiety, trying to get you through something as fast as possible, not as well as possible. The other form of the yips is I can't move at all. So this is the player that has a really difficult time stepping into a shot or a really difficult time taking the club back. That is your brain trying to just stop you from doing the thing at all. (laughs) And so if your anxiety is driving the experience, the fastest, strongest parts of your brain are just trying to get you to stop doing something or get it over with as fast as possible not as well as possible which is why anxiety is super disruptive to our performance whereas nerves are not
0: yeah the the i remember i played a lot of junior golf and you, you show up and you get to the first tee and it's inevitable right you feel those butterflies and then when you explained right. it in the book i'm going oh, man i so why would i get worried about butterflies oh there's that nervous feel again oh oh And then people start getting scared of that nervous feel. Whereas you're just saying, hey, this is just, it's important. And yeah, I'm nervous. And and finally, physiologically, it's because the brain is taking the blood away from your abdomen and putting it into your extremities. And that's great for performance. And that's going to make you hit the ball longer and it's going to make you feel stronger. But then if you let that scare you and it turns into anxiety, that's when it really becomes a disaster or yeah, potential, to, potential disaster,
2: right? It become it be, starts to become disruptive to us when yeah. it moves from that. So to your point, you're a hundred percent correct. Physiological, our physiological mobilization, that's our nervous system activating happens. Anytime I put you in a situation where the outcomes matter enough to you, yeah. and there is indeed a margin for error between success and failure. Right. And that is so that, Again, that's also a survival mechanism, but it's not just a run away from saber tooth tiger mechanism. It's also a go get those berries over there or go find that water. So it is a also nerves. By the way, have the capacity for protection, but they also move us toward pursuit. Anxiety is protection only. It's the threat response.
0: There we go. That's really that's really important to differentiate. And and having that kind of knowledge, you go okay. I'm nervous. Good. Mm-hmm. That's you know, what you
1: told me at Worlds before on that first day because I was like, I'm feeling really nervous. Like I don't want this to start getting in the way of my performance. And right. you explained it in like a, no, this is like what your body needs to be able to, you know,
0: hit the ball further.
1: Yeah, and I was like, okay, yeah. that's th- that makes sense. Right. <laughs>
0: that's that's thank you, yeah. Doctor Pryor. That's yeah. from your book. Yeah. I mean, that helped in the first day. It brought Sav to top fifteen. With all of the women from around the world, from Asia, from Europe, they were everybody showed up, and uh, yeah. she actually finished ninth in world standings uh, for the year in long drive, which is and she's uh, one hundred and thirty pounds all wet and constipated. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, congratulations on that! Thanks. Yeah, and to, and to your to your point there, Sean, you know if, even if we're just talking about the neurochemical difference between nerves and anxiety, mm. um, nerves is. It is adrenaline. It's a burst of cortisol followed by norepinephrine, which is another way of saying adrenaline. But it's also dopamine. The dopamine is the neuromodulator of pursuit for our brain. Anxiety, on the other hand, is only adrenaline or norepinephrine, which is why it feels worse. So -hmm. dopamine plus norepinephrine feels kind of good for us. There's some discomfort because physiologically we're elevated and our brain is trying to figure out, do I need to fight or flight? But the dopamine goes, uh, how about we flight? Or how about we go for this thing? <laughs> yeah. Versus the anxiety, it's only adrenaline. And and for those who are like, well, I'm an adrenaline junkie. You're actually an ad- adrenaline and dopamine junkie. Adrenaline by itself, in and of itself, for us, feels terrible. And that's why anxiety is disruptive to us. When we feel awful, our brain and body are trying to get us away from something. And it's trying to use discomfort to go there. And so... That's the reason why anxiety feels worse than nerves uh, on a neurochemical level. So if you can recognize nerves as like, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable, but I'm noticing that I'm ready to go compete versus the I'm worried about the future and I feel a sense of dread. I mean, you can recognize those two. Those two require two different interventions. Yeah. That was your first day, Saf. Yeah.
0: Right? Because we prepared and and we did our thing on the range and we prepared beautifully and you had a, you know, you had your plan of action, you show up and the first, the first set was okay, mm-hmm. but then we finally zeroed in. And once you found that target, mm-hmm. it was like, it was all over. You started just yeah. filling the grid yeah. and the performance was amazing. It was really yeah. beautiful to watch.
1: And it was, it felt good too. It's like it, it was how I felt in Denver. Yeah, where I got up on the tee and it felt like I can't miss kind of thing. That's it. Which, yeah, I missed a couple of shots. Let's inevitably. see what happens now, but, right? like, the confidence that I had. So I guess another question that I would have is, if you start out with, like, that OB set that I had on the second day, what's the best way of pulling yourself out of that negative experience? Funk. Yeah, how do you pull yourself out of that yeah. funk to then get back to a place where you can feel like I got this?
2: Yeah, it's a similar process that we talked about with Moo, the except there's one extra component to it, which is difficult for us, Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is the driving force, which is acceptance of what's happened. Yeah. So acceptance, to be very clear, doesn't mean that you're that you like something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean that you're satisfied. It doesn't mean you're necessarily comfortable or certain. And it doesn't mean you're settling for less. Yeah. What it means is you're dealing with things as they are. And once you have, you know, let's say it, it could be what well, the situation that you experienced could be a player playing a, an awful first round of a tournament, could be just having a terrible tournament altogether. Once it happens, we can only uh, control how we respond to it what happens for our brain is again. And so here's the different parts of our brain playing out. And depending on the type of explanatory style we are bringing to it, our brain is designed to try to save us from the things we tell it. We, it must be saved from when we don't accept past failure and mistakes for what they are, but not necessarily making them worse than they are, but just going, wow, man, that really wasn't very good. (laughs) And here's what I could have done differently to, and accepting things that have happened and letting them be in the past, what happens is we are always dragging that with us. So now our watches are not synced. One is playing out in the time as it's actually playing out, which doesn't care about what's happened in the past, except that we do. So now our watch is always off time in reverse. So we're in the past. Stewing. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. Yeah, stewing, dwelling, we, what we would call this.
1: Yeah.
2: Then the challenge becomes... Um, savannah is that when we are unwilling to accept things in the past for what they have been and again our explanatory style matters for how easy it is for us to be able to accept things or move past them so i wouldn't overlook that Mm -hmm. but when we are not willing to accept the past especially the things we don't like for what they are we are essentially communicating to our brain this is something you need to save me from in the future Mm. and now i have just planted the seeds of anxiety yeah so that when i'm in a sit- similar situation instead of me going okay that happened last time here's the adjustments i've made go pursue performing really well i have planted the seed of oh that happened last time that was the worst thing that could have happened to me it's a personal indictment da 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 you need to save me from it happening in the future so then when it comes around our brain goes uh oh well, what do i got to do to make sure the past doesn't repeat in my future right and now you have put yourself into uh protection mode rather than pursue mode
1: yeah yeah
2: so the acceptance piece is massive for us not just from getting out of the past but also making sure that in the future we don't bring anxiety to something uh, to try to save ourselves from something that has already happened
1: yeah it was funny because that first OB set that I've ever had long driving in Kingsport Tennessee I got off the tee and one of the other competitors she's like she's like it's okay it won't be your last OB, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Like that's yeah. not really what I needed to hear in this moment, and then,
0: yeah. and it's
1: kind of been like a little bit of a lingering, not not a not a thought in the forefront, but just like a little lingering.
0: The she planted a seed on you, yeah, and you and you let and, it you let it take hold,
1: yeah, and not on purpose. She didn't do it on purpose, obviously, right. but like you know, I'm I'm a, an anxious person by nature, so. I tend to cling on to little things here and there that I shouldn't that aren't important, but that my brain perceives important, I guess. Right.
0: Uh, and how would you How what would be that, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Pryor's answer to that? I mean, if somebody said that to you, what where would you go?
2: Well, the. Player was probably trying to help you feel better in that yeah. moment. It was very well intentioned, but yes. poorly executed. Yeah. Um, That's what, what you would, would call you, that you
0: you would call that surface psychology,
2: right? Yeah, it's a little bit of surface level. I I mean I'm not asking a, a long drive competitor to really know what a great psychological response would be to somebody um, you know, experiencing a significant amount of failure or what they consider to be a significant amount of failure. But Savannah, what I would Um, encourage you know what that player is probably trying to communicate is that like if you're going to do long drive or Mm. play golf or do anything there is always the possibility of failure yeah and when we the more we resist failure the less we are willing to accept it Mm -hmm. the more we are trying to meet it by means of avoiding it yeah and of course, what that does is it makes it more difficult for us to execute freely. That disrupts our physical skills. Yeah. What's going to be difficult for you and for anyone when we fail to a certain degree is the hard part for us is we have to accept that what just happened may indeed happen again. Mm-hmm. And the more I try to resist that possibility, regardless of how large or small it is, the more likely it is that I will perform in a similar way when those situations are possible, which then creates this kind of You know, we would call it a self-fulfilling prophecy, but really what it means is I'm bringing anxiety to the same situations over and over again, and then they play out in the way things typically play out when we bring anxiety. Right. One of the things that you'll have to accept is, or not have to, but you could choose to Mm -hmm. is that you had experienced failure in a way that you haven't before. Be mindful of the explanatory style you're giving it and the mindset you're bringing to it. And then also, well... Is that something that I am willing to perhaps experience again? Mm-hmm. If the answer is yes, you're communicating to your brain. You don't need to save me from that. Right. In which case, then it's far more likely to meet it with nerves, not anxiety. Because again, anxiety is our brain trying to save us from the stuff we tell it you have to save us from. Right. So, you know, for the bottom, the if I was going to put it into a kind of a larger umbrella, the more we are willing to accept the worst case scenario and worst case experiences for us, the more likely we are to be able to navigate those situations in pursuit than in than in protection mode, yep. meaning the more likely you are, the more you are willing to experience your worst, the more access you have to your best. Mm mm-hmm. And so what she was probably trying to get you to do is be like, Hey, you know, it happens to everybody and it'll probably happen to you again. Yeah. Just probably in a delivery. And at a time where you weren't quite ready to receive it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: She's, she's a great girl. Uh, It was just, yeah, it was so interesting to hear it in the moment when I was so already like bummed out, but I guess it's also like, it's, you have to remove your ego, right? Like I've always been somebody who's been very, uh, preoccupied with what other people think of me and I think sometimes that interferes with my performance as well actually I know that it does um (laughs) so you know it's like okay well if I remove ego out of the question it's like well I'm not above having another OB set like I'm a human being right? right like I'm I'm allowed to make mistakes and I think just yeah the acceptance part of it is makes so much sense and is obviously easier said than done at times. But I think that'll be like a huge key for me.
0: That's what you would call being mode instead of doing mode, right? Because when you're doing mode, you're making sure that this doesn't repeat. So I'm going to go practice my butt off and and make sure that this doesn't happen to me again. And so
2: you you could try that, but it would be a fool's errand. Uh, There's no amount of practice or skill you can acquire that guarantees success and guarantees that we'll never fail, even in some very spectacular ways. Um, You know, to this shade for you, um, Savannah, you know, without going too much into your psychology, I'll just speak in general terms when Mm -hmm. it comes to other people's opinions. Other people's opinions matter in our lives to a degree. Yeah. Um, We are social creatures. We need other people's opinions to navigate the world. However, there is certainly a point of diminishing returns where quite most of the time, what happens is we treat other people's opinions as if they are complete and accurate uh, ideas, Mm -hmm. as if they're facts. And we are also uh, agreeing with them, meaning if someone thinks this about me, it must be true. And so really what we're doing is we're trying to avoid our insecurities and our own personal feelings of where our shortcomings are by trying to manipulate other people's and or avoid them. And so therefore people's opinions become pretty threatening to us. You know, our uh, semi popular term for this is FOPO fear of people's opinions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And oftentimes um, that is a reflection of our explanatory style about people's opinions. So if someone thinks this about me, they must be right. Mm-hmm. And it's important for us to challenge that thought rather than challenging their opinion because the opinion is just that person's idea. We have to pay attention to what is the belief or what is the thought I have about your thoughts that would give it enough power for, for those opinions to be something that I am either trying to always procure or something that I am trying to avoid. Yeah. And there's a significant amount of research that shows that the higher our level of FOPO is, the more anxiety we feel because people's opinions are not controllable. Uh, they are unavoidable. And regardless of how successful you are, you are going to get opinions from other people that are non-favorable. Yeah. And so the more we value them, the more we start to worry about them because there's no scenario that can play out where we don't receive opinions in a way that we don't want and are therefore threatening. Um, so it's not about pretending people's opinions don't matter, but it is up, up to us to ask, well, what kind of value am I giving to these opinions mm-hmm. that would cause me to be worried about them in a way that I can't control.
1: hundred percent. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: So one of the, the last thing I'd like to touch on bef- before we adjourn is one of the things that I really I- appreciated about the book was the way that habits are, uh, based on reward, right? Correct. So that
2: is, uh, to be, to be clear, before you ask your question, re- for our listeners, reward doesn't mean that you get a reward. Right. Reward is a, a neuroscience term that refers to, you might say, the reinforcing reason why we would engage in a behavior, whether it's a physical behavior or a psychological behavior. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it feels good, it's, but it's... It's uh, a reinforcement. It, the reinforcement is a, the
0: reward is what you're talking about.
2: Correct. Yes.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I remember one of the examples that you used in the book where uh, an LPGA player uh, had a rough day, and she felt the need to do something about it. So she needed to go practice her butt off and went binge practicing. And yeah. the binge practice is the reinforced, uh, the reinforcement or the the reward, right?
2: Well, the the feeling she gets from panic practice is the uh the reward so the trigger in this case so habits are learned as like trigger behavior reward which is means to say when this happens i do this for this reason whether we are aware of it or not the trigger was playing poorly the behavior is go panic practice and binge practice the reward is the feeling and i'm putting yeah. air quotes for those since people can't see the feeling yeah. that you are doing something to create confidence. Right. And again, that feeling that I'm doing something is what reinforces the anxiety driven practice. That if I do this, it will, and then fill in whatever blank, make me feel more confident, make sure this doesn't happen again tomorrow, fix everything that happened today, et cetera. The downside is what we feel is doing something and what we are actually getting from those do not always align. Right. And so in that case, and for any player, panic practicing after a round of golf uh, is rarely, if ever, valuable for a variety of reasons. One, remember, in anxiety, the prefrontal cortex to our brain, so when we are in a state of semi-panic, is not fully online. Yeah. In which case, then you're not really doing things uh, intentionally. You're doing them reactively and in a way that you're trying to protect, not pursue. In which case, then you are actually reinforcing anxiety while you are doing it. And the second thing is, is, we know that when we are anxious, there is a physical manifestation to that in that it disrupts the physical sequencing of our motions. It disrupts the application of force, whether it's too much or too little. And it makes it very difficult for us to, um, to focus on an external target. So when you're panic practicing, meaning you're practicing via anxiety, it is a re- negatively reinforced habit that becomes very strong, but the ongoing effect from it is it further disrupts physical skills. It makes it less likely that you're going to be able to make physical corrections to play better. And in the long run, what you're doing is you are deeply undermining your confidence.
0: That was super important to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's going back to the being mode.
2: Yeah. The being mode of mind is us being willing to have thoughts and feelings and do nothing with them to just be with them. So just because we have a thought or a feeling doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't mean that it's relevant. You know, we even might go back to, to move early example, like his thoughts about the future, the near future. It's not that they were negative or that they were bad. It's just, they weren't happening right now. And so when he's trying to do something with those, what happens is he becomes, his watches in terms of his actual time and his psychological time, they start to move farther apart, not closer together. You know, And when we feel uncomfortable and when we feel uncertain, our compulsion and our habitual responses most of the time move these watches farther apart. Where if we learn to sit with our thoughts and feelings that are uncomfortable and uncertain, and in essence, just be with them without doing anything with them, that offers us the opportunity to still go, okay, well, what is required of me right now? How do I want to do it? And what do I want to do? And that is a means of being able to coexist with discomfort and make intentional choices about it rather than just reacting habitually from the parts of your brain that are just trying to save you from feeling bad. And the farther you move up the any performance realm, the more discomfort and the more uncertainty is involved. And so when you come to it, if you can't coexist with it, it tends to drag you around a little bit and then that ultimately will keep you from performing uh, more closer to your capacities because you're going to be cut off.
0: Brilliant. So the, the rain recognize the unhelpful behavior except then the interest curiosity is what I use when I teach yeah. because it's about, okay, uh, one of the, you know, cause I've, I've uh, looked at a lot of studies on how we learn motor skills and I love the fact that we can never repeat something exactly the same way every time. So why are you trying to make sure you can't? So understanding that making sure of something is impossible really helped me out. So what was my best chance? Well, uh, this is what I need to do. I need to hit this shot. So I want to start it there, end it there. I'm going to pick my intermediate point point. And then when I settle over it, I'm just going to allow momentum to release me in that direction and we'll see what happens. And, you know, I use a prediction process to calm the, the mind down saying that, okay, when I let momentum release that way, does it feel like my ball position, my distance to ball, my grip club relationship and my levels will allow the ball to start that way, be well struck and curve in the air the way I wanted to. And so if I feel comfortable over my shot, then I I feel I have a lot more chance of letting that shot happen. And so, you know, most of my teachings revolve around that. So I would say, you know, what were you thinking about? What was the last thing going through your mind just before you hit that shot? And it's it's just incredible the array of things that come out of people's mouths. You know, well, I was making sure or I was being careful or uh, I wanted to make sure my backswing was in the right place and then they, they rattle off five five or six different things that had no association to the shot that was about to happen. So what I love is when everything's in order and you are now witnessing, I'm just witnessing momentum releasing my shot into that picture And I am seeing it with interest, curiosity. So when I read this beautiful piece in that book about interest, curiosity, I mean, I just lit up like a Christmas tree. And well, that's how you play golf, you know, not make sure just, Hey, uh, this is the shot I want to hit. I'm just going to allow that to happen. And obviously you need the tools to allow that to happen. Cause if you don't know what you're doing, it's really hard to let that go. So that's where the preparation comes in. But interest curiosity is what, is what allows me to perform.
2: If I could uh, right now, especially during Q series season, if I could bottle up a little more of let me go play as well as I can and see what happens and force feed it to a lot of my clients, I probably would. Okay. It's uh, being willing to see how the future plays out is a significant marker of psychological strength. It is essentially the opposite of anxiety and it funnels our focus to the present.
0: Yes, sir. Which is
2: essentially the formula for stable confidence. And if you lean into that a little bit more, that's the formula for flow state.
0: Yes, sir. Sure. That's exactly it. And when I, when I practice or play, I'm, I'm, I feel now I am in a meditative state. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like mindfulness. So my next quest is to have golf be mindfulness exercise for people
2: that would be that would be awesome there we go i'm i'm almost there doc (laughs) i'll let you know when it's uh
0: i'll let you know when it's complete
2: that would be wonderful
0: (laughs) right on well thank you so much for coming to the show we could talk all day, literally. But <laughs> Dad's the,
1: been very, very excited about your book. <laughs> yes,
0: and I'm, I'm, I'm so stoked. I mean, you were very gracious, and uh, 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 this was just a fabulous podcast. I can't wait to publish this to our listeners. And um, you know, best place to get the book, obviously, I, I go to Audible or go to a- Amazon. Uh, and it, again, it's called Golf Beneath the Surface. And uh, oftentimes, you know, I get, "Hey, Sean, what's a good read for you?" That's you're my first pick now. Yeah, it's like <laughs> that's, that's that's the book that you need to get. Period. End of sentence. And uh, we are going to talk a lot more about it amongst our ourselves and our students. And um, we're going to be uh, like we have a uh, I have 180 thousand subscribers on our YouTube channel, and uh, that's something that I would love to start including in my future lessons uh, on YouTube so that people get a little bit more uh, in tune with these, uh, these concepts.
2: Um, I think for anybody who's looking to get better and enjoy golf more, I think it's easy for us sometimes to overlook that our psychology is the first domino in the order of operations that leads to physical skill execution. Yeah. So if you're leaving it to chititude with, most parts of their game, whether it's their equipment or their physical skill and just kind of hoping. And um, so my hope is my hope is that more people will put that um, as not necessarily a priority, but at least an equal footing, which opens the door to them getting more out of the rest of their uh, performance areas.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your week. And um, where's, uh, where's your next trip?
2: Next trip, I'm headed to West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia University is my graduate school alma mater. So I got to go back there and do some work uh, with some of their teams. And then I've got a bit of travel. The Florida area as the uh, Q school for here for the Corn Ferry Tour starts to wind down. So I've got a little bit of that. And then toward the end of the year, hopefully not a lot of travel
0: yes i feel you (laughs) (laughs) we did enough of that this summer too so no doubt well all the best to you sir and uh thanks again for coming and uh we look forward to hearing more in the future
2: thanks guys thank you so much for having me you guys have a wonderful day all right thank you appreciate you